The Canucks come out of the All-Star break in style with a 5-1 win over the Coyotes. It is the Canucks Hour here on your home of the Canucks, Sportsnet 650. I'm Jamie Dodd. My co-host, Canucks insider Thomas Drance, who also does a bang-up job covering the team at The Athletic. Canucks Hour brought to you by Avenue Machinery. Being a champion takes foresight. Build your company to win for years to come with fuel-efficient and reliable Kubota skid steers, excavators, and loaders from Avenue Machinery. Visit avenuemachinery.ca. Drancer, the Canucks got back to action in style. I'm back to action today. I'm hyped to be here after a couple of days. I'm uh, happy to have you On back, the injured the reserve, as it were, but I'm doing well. <laughs> I'm doing well now. Glad to be back. Thank you, Drancer. Shout out to Chris Faber for uh, stepping up in my absence and doing a fantastic job filling in but uh, as i said fired up to be here fired up to be back on the show win last night right back at it to the canucks tonight of course they'll play the islanders a 7 30 puck drop we'll get into some of the news and notes around that one but let's start with that win against the arizona coyotes last night transfer by the way 650 650 is the dunbar lumber text message inbox get your thoughts in and you know i said they they came back out of the all-star break in style and look yes i know it is the arizona coyotes we can all look at their roster and see what it is this year. But if you just kind of want run down the checklist for positive things the Canucks wanted to see coming out of the All-Star break, I think you got pretty much everything you could have hoped for out of that game, right? Garland, who, who had talked about, you know, how sucking sucks earlier in the day. He broke his slump with a goal against his former team. Patterson has a multi-point night. All of your top forwards got on the score sheet and scored goals. OEL in the defense stepped up without Hughes. Thatcher Demko was stellar as always. Both special teams units were very good. It was it was pretty much if you were looking for a confidence boost and saying, okay, here are all the things we need to go right, they got it last night against Arizona. But let's come back to Thatcher Demko being great, right? Uh, the Arizona Coyotes head coach said after the game that he thought for all the great performances that the Canucks had got, for Miller dashing through the entire yep. team, that Demko was their best player, and it's hard to disagree with that particularly with the way that the Canucks came out in the first period. Miller, of course, himself calling it not a perfect game, which was dead on. You know, over the course of a season, I always like to say that there's about 12 games that a team wins no matter how they play. And and you'll know it's that game because everything goes right. Like, you think about the 2019-20 season, and it was like that 7-2 win against the Los Angeles Kings, and it's like, Brandon Sutter has three assists. Sure. You know, last night felt like that game for the Canucks and what's been striking about this Canucks season is I can't remember many nights like that it feels like the Canucks haven't had their 12 at all yeah right even their wins have been grinded out extra time win by one Uh, this team just hasn't had those outburst games where their quality shows through and they just pummel opponents offensively regardless of the actual flow of play last night felt like that game to me it felt like Finally, the Canucks got one of their 12. One of their 12 that everyone's going to get over the course of the season and and sort of what really matters is what you do with the other, you know, 58, right? So as I sort of think about what we saw last night, I thought it was a really important win for this club for a couple of reasons. One is, you know, you you have a really tough opponent tonight. You're playing the second leg of a back-to-back. This is what we call a schedule loss, even though you're at home. And so... This is going to be a difficult one on Wednesday, getting those two points in the bank, coming out of the All-Star break. If you're still on team playoffs, that matters an awful lot, right? Like, that is a key, um, you know, a key victory for this team to, to bank from that perspective. 
The other reason that I thought it really mattered in the big picture is that this team has played 13 of 16 on the road. This city is absent of buzz around this club. It is harder to sell tickets, even with 50% capacity, in the wake of the pandemic. First of all, we've all gotten used to and improved our experience watching from home. We've all gotten used to not doing things. We've, we've all gotten used <laughs> to not doing things. And, and there's still people who aren't comfortable, right, in, in being in a stadium. I mean, period. And so, you know, there's that side of it. But also, you know, this team hasn't been a ton of fun, necessarily, even when they've been winning. Uh, I think the Bruce Boudreaux bump was thrilling for a moment for this city, but then it kind of, you know, the the results were sort of a little bit more normal, a little bit more like tie, loss, win, tie, loss, win, or overtime loss, win, right? I mean, when you look at what the club did after the 8-1 and streak with Boudreaux, Right, it's been four wins and like eight losses, albeit some of them in extra time. Right, I mean that's not the same thing as they're winning every game and scoring tons of goals. Last night, though, everyone who came to Rogers Arena, and you could get in the building on on the secondary market for twenty five bucks. On you know, uh, everyone who came to the building last night though would say that was a good night out. That was like, awesome. That was fun. We saw an NN goal. We saw Veg Melka. <laughs> I mean, if you're not going home talking about that, I don't know. <laughs> I don't know what you're up to, but um, the hottest ticket in the NHL. But you know, Demko was making stellar saves, right? Stones, Clayton Keller on a breakaway when with the score being three-one, like result very much still in doubt. He had this one save, and it was on a Coyotes power play, and it was some good cross seam movement, and then a and then a really hard one-time shot, and Demko makes the glove save, and then he does the Andre Vasilevsky like. That was actually an easy save thing, you know, in terms of his whole posture. He doesn't sell the glove save. Like, he just sort of drops the puck. Like, yeah, no, of course I got that. I'm Thatcher Demko. Loved every second of that. You got a big fight. Crowd loved the big fight between Lawson Krause and and Kyle Burrows. Good, good. I love to see it. Uh, This crowd particularly just loves to root for a guy named Burrows. I think that's something that comes naturally to Canucks fans. And, and Kyle Burrows, of course, had a black and blue game as the entire defense corps stepped up, and we'll get into that further. But as I look through the overall form, I, I did think that the Canucks were not the better team, to be totally honest with you. They just have far better talent than the Coyotes. And it felt like the dam kind of burst for a ton of their top offensive players who just haven't enjoyed one of those nights where they were running downhill it's like the Canucks got the running downhill game that they've long deserved this season at long last. And if you're looking for good news, it's that, honestly, the Canucks offense, anyway, does still is still probably owed five, five to ten of those over the balance of the season. And considering how few games there are left... Um, you know, that that could make for a team that looks pretty hot, that could run pretty hot down the stretch here. Well, and to your point about just generating the buzz and the excitement for the home crowd and for the fans in the stands at Rogers Arena, even, you know, as the team after the 8-0-1 start under Boudreaux and then through that stretch where, you, as you said, it was kind of win, loss, overtime loss, win, even in those when they were getting the, the good results in that stretch, it was often kind of a grinded out style. I know they had the big 5-1 win against Winnipeg, but you know goals were hard to come by for stretches uh, of, of for that team. So to see them kind of break out offensively, I think, is really important, especially when you look at, and I said it off the top, where the goals came from, right? Garland, Miller, Besser, Horvat, 
Pedersen, literally your five best forwards are the ones getting on the score sheet. OEL has a three-point night, despite one of the assists being just about the easiest primary assist you could hope to (laughs) ever accrue in your NHL career on JT Miller's fantastic goal. So as you said, kind of getting, I don't want to call it regression to the mean necessarily, but like we all knew OEL has more offensive upside than he's shown. And he gets a three-point night last night, right? Pedersen gets a two-point night. Horvat gets a tip-in goal off his knee on the power play. Just a lot of things went right for the Canucks. And again, with Arizona, yeah, they they it's not as if they dominated Arizona by any stretch of the imagination. In fact, they needed, in fact, quite the opposite. They needed Thatcher Demko to be really good. And it's you, you know you were talking about Demko's performance and what the Arizona coach had to say after the game. You probably didn't hear because you're at the rink watching the game, but on the broadcast, John Garrett was making the case that even in a 5-1 win, Thatcher Demko should have been the first star because he was that good in the first period to keep the Canucks in the game, keep it close Keenest when Arizona was out playing them. Keenest eye in the business, I'm, and I'm not, and I'm not just blowing smoke for with uh, with John Garrett. Right, John Garrett sees every deflection. <laughs> he's never wrong when he's like, I think that guy touched it. Right, if you've watched enough Canucks games, you know that if Garrett thinks a guy touched it. He's right 98% of the time, and it's a really hard thing to see. But that goaltender eye, um, yeah, John Garrett, keenest eye in the business. So if he said it, and the Arizona Coyotes head coach said it, and JT Miller said it, and Bruce Boudreaux said it, (laughs) you know it's true. You know it's true. You know it's not just me being negative. Yeah, Shorty, was, <laughs> Shorty was on uh, JT Miller for first star. So there, you, Drance has uh, cast the tie-breaking vote uh, retroactively from last night for in favor of John Garrett's uh, Thatcher Demko vote for first star of the night. But one of the other things, and I, I want to get into you know some of the specific things with the Canucks' performance from last night with Elias Pettersson and the defense in in specific, but. The, when you look at that Arizona Coyotes team, and this this debate comes up all the time, and especially when there was new management taking over, right? And is it going to be a, a teardown rebuild? Is it going to be a retool? And there's always a contingent that looks at it and says, tear it down to the studs, be really bad, try to get the best draft pick possible. And I look at that Arizona team, and it really just reinforces if your goal, if you're going to make it your goal to go for the first overall pick in the NHL draft or to maximize your lottery odds at getting the first overall pick, you have to be very, very bad. And guess what? That Arizona team, they're not even the worst team in the league this year, right? That's Montreal, who, by the way, just fired Dominique Ducharme, if you haven't heard that breaking news this morning. So that was just kind of a little side note that occurred to me is there's a reason that Jim Rutherford is not looking at this Canucks team when you do have the talent like Miller, Besser, Horvat, Pedersen, Hughes, Demko, Garland already in place because to try to get in the best lottery odds competition with the teams like Arizona and Montreal, it's just, man, you have to be truly, truly bad to be in the running well, there. And the, and the worst record in the NHL has never meant more in a league that does the lottery, right? This is not the NFL. This is not just yeah. the reverse standings. You have to be the worst and get lucky, right? Um, and the Canucks are very bad at getting lucky. I mean, shades of me in high school. <laughs> and we know this. We've seen this time and time again. This team has never won a lottery. In fact, they lost three in a row on their very first day as an official NHL member club. Um, you know, lotteries do not are not kind to the Vancouver Canucks. Um, you can ask any Canucks fan. You can ask Jim Benning. You can ask Trevor Linden. Uh, I mean, you can ask Bud Poyle. <laughs> and they, they will tell you. And yet, next year's draft lottery is an interesting one because there's three guys bunched up at the top. Obviously, one of them is a North Shore product in Connor Bedard. Uh, For me, he's the best player in the bunch, and that's not just regionalism. I I think that's clear. But Adam Fentelli 
is an incredible prospect, and then Mika Michkov might be the best natural goal scorer that we've seen since Ovechkin, Stamkos. I mean, that's the sort of company we're talking about with Michkov. So the NHL has adjusted the draft lottery so that it works to only select the first two picks in the draft with the lottery odds. So if you have the worst record next year, at the very least, you're guaranteed one of the three. That's hugely valuable. Presumably, that's what the Coyotes are shooting for. Although, if their arena issues persist, one wonders uh, if they might just be best off taking Mitchkov because he's going to be a couple years before yeah. he can come over. Uh, and you might you might run into trouble with the other guys. Um, look, I, I understand that no one wants to hear it, but the idea of the best hockey prospect we've ever seen coming out of Western Canada playing for the Canucks, and he's a North Shore guy whose favorite player is Tyler Mott, if you don't, if you don't on some level want to see that, oh, I understand the <laughs> I understand the draw. If like you, as you if, said, local product, and you see like you see the highlight reel of what he's doing, well, and, and, you, you, saw, and you look you at saw, the stats and what he's doing, well, and you incredible. saw the highlight reel. He went between the legs. He did the Tyler Mott, he did the Tyler and, Tyler then, Mott. and then Tyler Mott posts it on his IG. Yeah, it's like man, like the mutual appreciation society. Yeah, like I, I mean, know, as we talk about what re, to do re, with, re, with Tyler, Tyler Mott, Tyler, I was going to say resign Tyler Mott and tank. Like you know. Considering where this team's at, right, considering that they have 10% playoff odds, considering all the pain that this franchise has endured to get to where they're at, which is kind of nowhere, kind of in the middle, if that's not a tempting option to you and if that's not a tempting option to Canucks management, I mean, I I don't know what we're doing here. Like, it has to be. It has to be. I get the draw. 100% I get the draw. My point is only, I think sometimes we get into the idea that, well, you could you could tank while still keeping Elias Pettersson and Quinn Hughes, right, and Thatcher Demko. And then you look at that Arizona game last night, and to your point, they didn't outplay Arizona, but they just had the talent that meant we don't have to outplay you because we have this this talented group. And my point is, if you were, if you were going to make it the Canucks' objective to tank for Connor Bedard, you're basically saying – all of those guys are off the roster in one way or another. Oh, I think I think you're really only saying Demko. I mean, you're right that the other guys can sort of will you single-handedly to being certainly not the worst team in the league, but Demko's the guy who can really change things up, right? Demko's the guy who can be the difference between, you know, a, a bad team that makes the playoffs, for example, right? And a team that's truly, truly in the lottery. So it's an interesting... It's an interesting hypothetical. We all know that this organization no, that's is not, not their, tank. that's not the direction. We all got. know they're as, not going to do it. As but... enticing as the North Fan product, Connor Bedard, oh, that's not happening. God, uh, yeah. that's. I mean, that's just. Of course, they're not going to tank. No, of no, course no not. chance, no, no chance. So it is what it is, unfortunately. And look, partly one of the reasons that that's not going to be on the radar whatsoever for this management group is the list of players we're running down, right? And one of them who had another strong performance last night, picking up a goal, picking up a primary assist as well, is Elias Pettersson. And the conversation with Elias Pettersson over the last month or so has been really fascinating because he had the kind of renaissance and started producing. Then there was a little bit of a dry spell. Now he comes right out in the All-Star game, two points out of the All-Star break, and uh, two points in the first game back. And I think we're going to have another iteration of the, you know, is Pedersen back conversation. And you just look at his record. I think it's, what, nine points over the last ten games that he's got? Nine point six goals. Nine point six goals over the last ten games. And for me, that's that's back. That's what you want to see from Elias Pedersen. And I think we 
early in the season when he was struggling and he'd have a good moment and people would say, oh, okay, well, maybe he's starting to turn it around, the response would always be, yeah, but there's got to be the bottom line, right? There's got to be the bottom line. There's got to be production. Well, the production is here now, right? So if you were always waiting to see the production, the production is here, and maybe it doesn't look quite as flashy or quite as jaw-dropping as it did at other moments in Elias Pettersson's Canucks career. But again, this is about the bottom line with the player, and right now he is providing that bottom line. I think what we're seeing from Elias Pettersson is, for me, he's back. He just hasn't been on a next-level tear, right? We're kind of seeing baseline, star-level Elias Pettersson right now. Star-level players will eventually have, you know, an incredible two weeks where they're at well over a point per game, right? Where he has 15 points in 10 games or something like that. We haven't seen that yet, and I think maybe that's what some people are waiting for to really say he's back. But again, you just look at the baseline level of production from Pedersen, and it's there right now for him. Yeah, it is. The fact of the matter, too, is that if you ask him, and I did today, right? You're going to get the John Wick answer. Yeah, yeah, I'm thinking I'm back. <laughs> and, of course, I, you know, I did ask him it today. That We had an interesting exchange. Uh, Chris Faber, roll the clip. PD six goals, nine points in your last ten games. I know you don't measure your own impact in production, but how are you feeling about where your game's at of late? Uh, yeah, definitely feel better, obviously. Uh, nice to score some points. Um I just feel, other than the points, I feel just more uh, in the game. I feel like I'm doing a difference um, in the place, uh, making plays, creating plays. Uh, um, so I just feel much more involved uh, and uh, obviously uh, more fun when, when producing too. Is it to some extent a self-fulfilling prophecy once you start to score, you get confidence and then things start to feel different, you start to feel more involved? How, how is that dynamic? How have you experienced it over the course of the last four weeks? Yeah, of course. Um, when you score, you get a confidence boost. You feel good. Uh, and obviously, I've been feeling good for over a while now, and I feel like me again. Uh, I'm not overthinking. I'm just playing uh, and uh, getting back to my old self, I'd say. Um, so... Um, yeah, it's um, definitely more fun, uh, personally. I'm feeling like me again. To me, that's the choice clip, the choice cut. Now, sort of threw that at Bruce Boudreau, too, and he said, this has to be the expectation for a player yep. like Pedersen. He has to produce every night. Like, that's what we need. And, of course, he's dead right, but I do think with where this club has been, with how some of their top offensive players have run cold this season... Um, you know, I, I do think the recent run of form we've seen from Pedersen is far more indicative of who he is as a player than the games that lead up to it. And yeah, I'm not prioritizing a 10-game sample over a 37-game sample. It's that I'm giving precedence to a return to form that matches a 200-game yeah. sample prior to this season. Uh, Pedersen's going to lead the team in scoring, goal scoring, in, in the second half. I've been consistent about saying that. I'm currently right. Um, we'll see if that continues. I bet it does. I bet it does, and I, I thought that line with Hoaglander and Pod Colson looked really interesting. I'd expect we'll see the same thing tonight, although I'm not sure we will. It was interesting because Boudreaux left the door open for a line. He said, same defense, Halak will start in net. We'll talk about that a little bit more later in the show, but he did leave the door open for a lineup change at forward, and I know when I heard that, my mind immediately went to, could Hoaglander be coming out of the lineup again because he took 
a bad penalty in the offensive in zone. The third, which was the same thing he'd done against Florida. Exactly. Right? And, and Boudreaux was critical of it post game. Yeah. So uh, th- those stars would seem to align. Now, I'd, I'd mentioned too that Hoaglander was the last Canucks forward out during optional skate, but he wasn't getting bagged. He wasn't getting what I would call rinsed. Um, so I wouldn't have tweeted, nor would I suggest that it looks to me like Hoaglander's out. I don't know. Um, but it's something to monitor. I suspect, however, because Justin Dowling took the warm-up skate on Tuesday night, that suggests to me that there is a Canuck forward that we don't know. Yeah. Who is, you know, has even last night was probable, right? Probable, like 80% to play, but there was a chance they didn't. So you have to have the insurance body ready and, and fresh. Uh, Dowling wasn't rinsed either on Tuesday. So my my I suspect that there is a mystery forward battling some kind of ailment and when Boudreaux said the rest like yeah if there's an opportunity to rest a guy you know that to me suggests that if someone comes out if there is a roster change if Justin Dowling is in the lineup tonight maybe it'll be a performance-based lineup change which could result in Hoaglander getting scratched again but I would wager heavily that it's someone else uh, and someone who would be um, you know not an injury-related replacement but a, a, a load management, a load to a certain management extent. related yeah. replacement, uh, perhaps a little further up the line. That's an interesting point because I understand the frustration from Boudreaux with the penalty, especially because it's a repeat thing with Niels Hoaglander from not that long ago as well. But as, as, as Boudreaux himself said, they need Elias Pettersson performing at the top of his game for the rest of the season. They need him to be productive for the remainder of the season if they're going to have any hope of staying alive in this playoff race. And if you do have something that's working with Pettersson and Pod Colson and Hoaglander, I would be pretty reluctant to break that up just to send a message to Niels Hoaglander in this situation when they just had a successful game together as a trio. And I, I look at, it, at that combination as, one, it's it's an interesting fit for Elias Pettersson, but also when you're trying to still find the right role and still get the most out of Pod Colson and Hoaglander, I actually think it's a good fit for them as well because you know that, that line is not going to be asked to go up against, you know, the tough matchups on the other team. They're going to be relatively sheltered, given offensive opportunities, and I just think it's a spot where all three players can have a lot of success right now. So I would be hesitant to break up that group, again, especially after coming off a strong game from them. But it remains to be seen what direction Bruce Boudreaux will go. Lots of uh, lots of great texts coming in, 650-650 about Elias Pettersson, about the game last night, and a whole lot more. We'll get to some of those on the other side. Plus, we haven't mentioned it. The Canucks were playing without Quinn Hughes. How did the defense step up in the number one, uh, in the absence of the number one defenseman for the team, Quinn Hughes? As a reminder as well, Canucks Hour is available in podcast form on Apple, Spotify, Google, wherever you get your podcasts. Make sure you subscribe and leave us a five-star rating and review. Lots more coming up on the other side. It is the Canucks Hour on your home of the Canucks, Sportsnet 650. And the Canucks are very bad at getting lucky. I mean... Shades of me in high school. Keller dumps it into the Canuck end. Niels Hoaglander back to it. Makes it up the right side for Bob Colson. In front for Pedersen. In alone. He scores! That was Elias Pedersen getting on the score sheet with a pretty goal against the Arizona Coyotes, one of a few. I mean, not doesn't 
compare to JT Miller's latest coast-to-coast masterpiece against the Arizona Coyotes, but it was a nice goal nonetheless from Elias Pettersson last night. It is Canucks Hour, Sportsnet 650, Jamie Dodd, Thomas Drantz here with you for another half hour. Canucks Hour brought to you by Avenue Machinery. Being a champion takes foresight. Build your company to win for years to come with fuel-efficient and reliable Kubota skid steers, excavators, and loaders from Avenue Machinery. Avenue Machinery. Just before we move on from Elias Pettersson, there are lots of thoughts about Pettersson coming in to the uh, 650-650 Dunbar Lumber text text message inbox. GMAZ says, why do you guys keep lengthening Petey's leash, saying things like he's back but at a baseline level? That's garbage. Call him what he is, an above-average player who is a good piece but not the piece that can put you over the top. And look, my point was if you look over the last 10 games – His production is exactly where you would expect a first-line center who also does a fantastic job of driving play to be in Elias Pettersson, and that's six goals and nine points through ten games, right? You extrapolate that over 82 games, and it's pretty much exactly where you would expect and hope the player to be. Yeah, maybe I I know fans want to see him get up into that 85-90 point range, But again, you can still be a legit bona fide first line center on a contending team, even if you're in that 70 to 75 point range as a center, as long as you do a bunch of other things well. So it's again, that's to me when I say baseline, what I mean is that if he did that consistently over the season, you would have absolutely no problems with where Elias Pettersson's production was. I expect over the remainder of this season, he'll have, you know, a 10 game sample in there somewhere where he significantly outperforms that because that's what superstar players do. But again, when I say baseline, it's because that's the production you expect extrapolated out over an 82 game season uh, from Elias Pettersson. Uh, we also have a text in that says a couple things about Pettersson. One, he's getting points, but he isn't driving play like the best centers in the league do. He's the beneficiary of some good setups. Two, he has to be better at faceoffs. Starting 65% of your shifts on defense isn't a recipe for success. On the first point, uh, I'd note that over this 10-game sample, Pedersen is the leading Canucks centerman by expected goals percentage. So for me, anyway, he is driving play uh, at a level beyond that of the, uh, his other teammates. And considering other centermen on this team include JT Miller and Bo Horvat, who aren't exactly slouches, yep. um, you know that's that to me is driving play. He's the Canucks are more likely to score the next goal with Pedersen on the ice than they are with any other centerman on the club. Uh, at the moment, and and have been for the last ten games, that to me is driving play. The second thing is, as for the faceoffs, I agree with you. And you know who else would agree with you? Elias Pettersson himself. Oh yeah, he's very very critical of his own faceoff ability. So that needs to be, uh, you know, an area of his game for improvement. Particularly if he's going to be a tough minute centerman, uh, a guy who matches up every night against the opposition's best players, which is clearly something he has an ambition to do on a more regular basis. And Emily from North Van texts in, uh, for Pedersen, now that he's showing signs of getting back to his old self, how important is it that he has consistent line mates now and plays permanently at center? And I think the latter of those two points, Emily, is the big one Vital. for me. Vital. And, and when we talk about driving play, he might. I, I think Elias Pedersen's the kind of player that when he's at his best, yeah, if you put him on the wing, he's going to produce. He's going to get on the score sheet. But in to drive play like he can at his best, to control the game, you need to have him at center. That's where he's going to have the biggest impact. That's where he's going to have the most involvement. That's where you're going to get the most value out of Elias Pettersson. Now, the line mates, yeah, I'd like to see him get a few games here with Pod Colson and Hoaglander. That's the kind of thing I have no problem with seeing how that develops over the course of the remaining season. But at center, I think, is absolutely key 
to get the most value out of him, to him to be the player with the feeling the Canucks down the middle of the ice. Uh, well, last thing, we've got a lot of texts in. In fact, I'm pretty sure it's just the same person texting you multiple times, but I still want to address it. Do it. Uh, I'm totally silly to mention 10% odds of the playoffs when the Canucks have had an extreme amount of injuries, COVID really hurting their lineup and the winning percentage with Boudreaux would be the real common sense way to figure out their playoff chances. I don't think you can throw out the 25 games they opened the season with under Green. They've been better under Boudreaux by expected goal uh, percentage. But, you know, we're, we're not talking about worlds better. We're talking about percentage points across the board. It's a couple percentage points in terms of the quality of looks that they are generating. Granted, I weight that very heavily. But in terms of overall zone time, in terms of the shot clock, you know, that impact is not being felt across the board. It's being felt in sort of one specific instance. And the um, extent of that bump when we compare the 25 versus the 22 game sample to this point is, you know, getting narrower and it's only about two percent so at this point we'll see we'll see sort of when it's an apples to apples comparison at 25 games what it looks like but my guess is is that the fundamental underlying profile of this team is going to be very similar very similar um despite the coaching change and despite the massive impact that boudreaux's hire has brought in terms of this club's posture and feel and vibes like the vibe check (laughs) is sort of where it's passed with flying (laughs) colors the canucks you know, currently, right, remain, um, well, you know, pretty far out of it. I know that it looks like seven points, right? It, it looks like um, seven points out of second in the Pacific or four points out of the second wildcard spot, but the team that they are four points behind in the second wildcard spot is the Calgary Flames, right? The Calgary Flames have a 619 point percentage. The Canucks have a 511 point percentage. Extrapolate that over... 82 games, and you're looking at being about 10 points out on pace uh, with only 35 games remaining on the schedule to make that up. Uh, You'd also throw in the fact that there are three teams between the Canucks and the Flames, and then also the Winnipeg Jets, who have a higher point percentage than the Canucks and four games in hand despite being only three points back. So the 10%, 10 which is based on Dom LeCision's model, they're 1 in 10 odds. You know, I think they're pretty close to dead on this is a very very steep climb and if it's going to continue then the Canucks need to beat an Islanders team tonight they need to beat a Toronto Maple Leafs team they really need to take you know um, 14 of every 20 available points so seven wins every 10 games or the equivalent in in point percentage just to get up to about 94 93 points which might be the playoff bar I mean even that could be low and if you're talking about a 700 point percentage like you're talking about the type of point percentage that's managed by teams that are the Colorado Avalanche and the Florida Panthers and the Toronto Maple Leafs and the Lightning and the Carolina Hurricanes. Like, you're talking about an elite rate of performance over 35 games. Is that enough for the Canucks? Uh, I mean, they've done it under Boudreaux. They have, in fairness, over 22 games. But it is a very, very high bar, a very, very steep climb that this club still faces. And, and just to the original Texture's point, you know, the reason you can't just base it on the points percentage since Boudreaux took over is because those first 25 games count in the standings too, right? Like you, that's, that's a hole that they had to climb out of. That's an anchor around their points percentage for the rest of the season. If, if they had got a clean slate in terms of their results when Boudreaux took over, then yeah, obviously you could discount what happened in the first 25 games, but those, those results are still on the books in the NHL standings. And it's, it it created just a massive mountain uh, for the Canucks to climb. And to their credit, they're doing their best. They're, 
they've put themselves at least in a position where you know, it's not complete fantasy land to talk about going on that kind of run. I want to I want to read one text from Sean in, from Waterloo. He says, with Rask retiring, could Halak's value be up if Boston want to add a familiar face? Now, the Bruins are pretty set in goal with both Olmark, Linus Olmark, and uh, promising rookie and Jeremy Swayman. Yeah. And so, that said, Halak has been enormously successful there, right? I mean, he's been there for a long time since he left... Um, a, a situation that got pretty complicated uh, on Long Island. Uh, he's actually facing his former club today, a team that at one point demoted him right to the American League. One would imagine that the echoes of that experience are felt in the no movement clause that he yep. made sure to negotiate into this one year deal. And for good reason, right? I mean, the Islanders picked up a goalie off waivers, a guy named Barube, uh, JF Barube at the time. And that left them with three goalies they liked, and Halak was the odd man out. Not hard to envision a scenario, right, where that could have been the case here, especially with how Spencer Martin competed. So this all ties into, of course, Halak having a no-movement clause and a $1.25 million bonus, a performance bonus, which will trigger this evening once he appears in his 10th game played for the club. So one second into tonight, tonight's game, Halak will be due that $1.25 million bonus. Now, my, the Canucks' understanding is, and, and as I understand it, from, you know, multiple sides. And, of course, I, I first reported the structure of the deal. So the $1.25 million performance bonus for hitting 10 games played is written in such a way that it is due within 30 days following the end of the regular season, as opposed to being something that he earns right away. Because there's a save percentage component as well, is there, there not? There is an additional 250k okay. for okay. a save percentage above 905. So, he's going to hit both. Yeah. He's going to hit both. And that was the spirit of the deal. The deal was signed to be a $3 million deal. With that intent. Structured to avoid the full cap hit for the purpose of off-season accounting to give the Canucks, you know, a wall of cap space to ward off any Elias Pettersson, would-be Elias Pettersson offer sheet predators around the league. And so... Halak is going to hit that bonus today. Now, the Canucks' understanding, again, is because of the way that the deal is written, they could potentially trade the bonus with Halak's contract were he to be involved in a trade prior to the NHL trade deadline. However, it would be negotiable. So it is movable, but it's not necessarily movable. The other side of this, the flip side of this, um, is there are ways potentially to have that bonus count against the cap for this year for this team. However, getting to that point would require getting out of LTI. The Canucks currently have over $9 million in LTI with Hamannick included, but Hamannick obviously is not, coming off. is not there for long. I yeah. saw him skate today during the optional skate. So th- that seems like just a matter of time, but certainly you'd be looking at a club that needs to clear $6-plus million, million and go through some very significant rigmarole in terms of their cap management to get out of LTI to the point where they could have the $1.5 million bonus that Halak is sure to hit um, apply against the cap this year. As for Halak's trade value, I think it's very important, vital in fact, that if that's ever going to be a possibility, the fit has to be perfect. Perfect, right? You're talking about finding a team that Halak is eager to go to, right? that's like close to his family home where his family's comfortable right he's he's negotiated he's earned this respect and by the way i'd add in the event that he's moved it would simply be for this reason right it would not be for any estimation of him as a as a goalie or person i think this organization loves the guy um if they if you could find the perfect fit a team that he was willing to go to 
that was willing to take on the bonus, that was willing to ideally separate themselves from an asset yep. in order to acquire him. Um, if they were willing to invest that level of their own cap flexibility, uh, their own financial commitment, right? Because the bonus isn't paid until after the season and, um, and presumably assets to shore up their depth and goal. And it was a team that Halak was willing to press send on the deal to. That is sort of one way to avoid the thing, um, uh, to avoid the bonus overage penalty for the 2022-23 league year. Alternatively, the other option, clear a whole lot of cap space space. in midseason, which is not easy. It's not easy, especially in the flat cap era. I mean, you have to remember cap space itself is an asset, something we talk about a lot on this program for good reason. And you also have to remember that a team might like Halak, but Halak is not their only option, right? You have to remember that there are 32 individual actors around the NHL trying to pursue what makes sense for them in the moment. And that's why cap space is, you know, such a vital thing to have and why it's been such a focus in so much of what Jim Rutherford has said he wants to achieve in opening up avenues for this club to improve. Well, and from every other team's perspective, there's a reason that it's become such a focus in this market to try to avoid having that bonus count against the team's cap next year because it's a drag. It's dead money on your books, but every other team is going to look at that in a very similar situation, right? Where they're saying, well, hold on a second. We don't want to have that bonus count against our cap potentially next year as well. Now, there might be potentially other teams that are under the cap enough not in LTIR, that they could pay out the bonus and have it count this year. But again, to your point, when cap space is such a valuable commodity in season, if you're a contender looking to load up at the deadline, is that how you're going to want to use your available cap space? So I, I don't think it's an impossibility. And I think I actually think the Boston, as much as they do have Olmark and Swayman there, I think it's an interesting name just to float in the wake of the Rask news. I know the Capitals have come in as well. I don't think it's an impossibility, but there's so even more so than in a normal trade involving cap uh, machinations going into the deadline. There's so many specific criteria that have to be checked to make this one work. I think it would be really, really difficult to find a deal that makes sense for both sides. Well, and, and the last thing is on the goalie market, right? All it takes is one injury. All it takes yep. is one change. All it takes is one really bad week that dents a team's confidence in their options, right? It, it, all it t- like. You can't gauge the market for a goaltender among contenders almost until someone really needs it. You know, like we saw with Edmonton this season, right? You you think you're fine and then you're not. Uh, goaltending is the most volatile position in the league. It's one reason why, you know, this club in that area is such a competitive advantage. Even no matter what you think of the team in front of Thatcher Demko right now, the fact that they have Thatcher Demko and they have Yaro Halak, and hey, look, it turns out Spencer Martin can puck, stop pucks at an NHL level too. Maybe even steal you games. <laughs> Maybe even steal you games. Sure, why not? Um, it's why that's been such a competitive advantage over the years for this team in a durable sense that's actually quite uncanucksy. <laughs> when you consider the wider angle lens of this franchise's history, the so-called goalie graveyard. So, um, yeah, I mean, it's we'll see, but I think the goalie market especially is one that you... it Like, it's a fool's errand to try to project what it looks like this far out because all it takes is one contender to decide, actually, actually, we need this super consistent 1B option. Like, actually, that's something we're willing to do and, in fact, want to push some chips into the middle to achieve that. Uh, 650-650, keep your thoughts coming in on the Dunbar-Lumber text line. I did want to touch quickly on the performance from the Canucks defense last night against the Arizona Coyotes because, of course, a big storyline going into the game 
was the absence of Quinn Hughes in COVID protocol uh, on the other side of the border in Michigan right now. So they'll be out be without him, of course, for tonight's game against the Islanders as well. And it was the kind of thing to answer where you just look, you know, whether it's you or Batch or whoever posting the lines from Morning Skate on Twitter, and you look at the deep pairings without Quinn Hughes, and you kind of go, oh boy, this even against the Coyotes, this could be interesting. Because you take out Quinn Hughes, and it just looks so much different in that top four for the Canucks. Overall, though, and I think a lot of the focus will be on Oliver ekman Larson because he has the three points. It was against his former team. But overall, I thought the entire defense corps did a pretty good job of stepping up in Quinn Hughes' absence and getting the job done for the Canucks last night. Oliver ekman Larson is now one slap shot goal away from people suggesting that he should be a fixture on PP1 <laughs> in this marketplace. And I want to nip that in the butt no, in advance absolutely and not. just say, no, stop it. Stop it. And think about it. Stop. Stop. But it is, you've talked about this, how just defenseman stop. production is so <laughs> contingent on that power play time, right? And 100%. so all of a sudden, Quinn Hughes goes out and, hey, OEL can play on the power play. We all know that. He should absolutely not displace Quinn Hughes. But I don't think it's coincidence that, oh, hey, he gets a point. He gets, you know, a puck goes in off Bo Horvat's knee. It's like, yeah, that's kind of thing that happens exactly. when, when you're the first power play unit oh, defenseman. Oh, 100%. It completely changes your ceiling in terms of where your production can and should be now. For me, Oliver ekman Larson has been in that Brock Besser, Elias Pettersson camp of guys who are not getting enough credit for their offensive uh, contributions. If you look at their hockey card, the counting stats don't match their actual ability to help this team generate. Uh, Oliver ekman Larson should be probably a 25-ish point guy this season. Probably not going to get there, and that's not going to be because of his form or his ability to generate play. Uh, or make good passes, or take dangerous shots. It's just going to be a bunch of random distribution, uh, just a, just a bunch of bad luck. So uh, that's an important thing to keep in mind with with Ekman Larson. He's been due to have more um, points anyway, and I wouldn't be surprised if he does go on a nice little scoring run here. Uh, you know, while, while Hughes is absent. As for the sort of down ticket Canucks defenders, I mean. You know, name a guy, and it was a good night for them. They stepped up. Luke Shen did Luke Shen stuff. He's as steady as they come. It's why there could be some serious interest in acquiring him at the deadline from from contenders. Uh, Kyle Burroughs had a black and blue game, right? Fired up this entire building with a fight against a terrifying human being in Lawson Krause, um, but also blocked a ton of shots, played smart defensive hockey. Uh, Noah Juleson looked great in transition, right? Bruce Boudreau talked about the need to be consistent. Right, If you're going to be an everyday player, uh, something that Juleson to this point in his career has not, despite uh, his high draft pedigree, um, you know, he had a run of really devastating injuries that kind of derailed him in Montreal, didn't really get a ton of looks on one of the deepest right sides in the NHL, NHL down in Florida, um, but he took advantage of an opportunity in a major way yesterday, like, he looks big out there, he looks athletic, I thought that play in transition to gain the line, uh, make a good pass that resulted in the Connor Garland goal, uh, that was fantastic. That was the type of two-way motion and movement and transitional awareness that the Canucks haven't had a lot of this season. And, and so you look overall at the defense score, and one thing I did a little while ago uh, at The Athletic was I broke down which teams get the most offensive contributions from their blue liners outside of their number one D, outside of their bell cow power play one defenseman. Yeah. And the Canucks were one of the last in the league, right? The Arizona Coyotes, the Canucks, there was, you know, a bunch of bad teams, frankly, that ranked dead last in that. And as you'd expect, most of the elite teams, the Carolina Hurricanes, the Vegas Golden Knights, and the Florida Panthers are some of the best. Colorado Avalanche, clearly the best. They might have three defensemen at 40 points this year. It's outrageous. 
So, one thing to note here is the Canucks got five points from defensemen yesterday. They have 46 points from non-Hughes defensemen all season. So they got 11%. 11% of their offense from non-Hughes defensemen in one game last night. And if you go back to the game against Winnipeg where they had six assists, right? You you get to 25% of this team's <laughs> offense coming in two games from the last six, six games, right? Uh, basically the last two weeks. Are they heating up? Or is that indicative of a problem? For me, it's indicative of, yeah. of a problem. But, but... And is it? We'll it, see tonight. It, it, t- <laughs> it also ties into your OAL point of some bounces going the right way, right? And if I think if there was anyone who was due, you know, the world's uh, most flattering primary assist on JT Miller's goal, it was Oliver Ekman Larson, who's certainly could have picked up more points uh, over the course of this season than he has ended up getting. It, it's interesting. The thing that really struck me beyond just the offensive production from the Canucks blue line last night was, as you said, really good night for Noah Juleson. And look, the Canucks have, we all know about Luke Shen at this point. He's become a mainstay in the lineup, which he wasn't necessarily expected to be at the beginning of the year. Kyle Burrows has played a lot more of, and I think a lot of people would have expected him to at the NHL level when he was initially signed. Now Noah Juleson is getting a chance to do his thing. And you look at it in light of what's been such a kind of bizarre, frustrating situation with Travis Hamanick, and it just it just keeps coming back to me that the new management must be really, really frustrated that they have that money tied up in Travis Hamanick and Tucker Pullman, to be fair, for next year, and in Tucker Pullman's case beyond that, because they're getting decent performances from guys that cost a lot less in, in Shen, but now in Burroughs, now in Noah Juleson, and again, when we talk about, you know, the Jim Rutherford track record and the ability to kind of do defenses on the budget... I'm, I, I just get the sense he's probably looking at this and saying, man, I would love to see what we have with Noah Juleson as a potential long-term fit or Kyle Burrows as a potential in a potential larger role. But our salary cap yeah. situation is such that I don't know if that's going to be possible. Well, so Noah Juleson was a throw-in to the uh, Lamico deal, yep. right? The original offer from Florida was one-for-one, one, Lamico for Yolevi, but the Canucks had lost Brady Keeper and had uncertainty in Hamannick. They held out. They got Juleson as well. Uh, Kyle Burrows... Do you know Kyle Burroughs is signed to a two-way contract? He's not even got a guaranteed no. NHL salary this year. He hasn't spent a second in the in the A, but he has. He doesn't even have a guaranteed NHL salary. Uh, Luke Shen, two years, eight hundred fifty k, unbelievable value. And this is what we talk about. Like we spend so much time talking about using cap space as a weapon to go take a ton of go make a ton of low cost bets on a variety of you know. Um, sort of question mark players because you might end up getting better players than guys you pay more guys like and and look look up and down the roster you'll see a ton of middle class guys who are effectively replaceable if you find the right one million dollar piece um you can probably find guys who can replace even better players even bigger ticket players and that's something that needs to be instructive in guiding this club's approach to the deadline it's something we've focused on so much and you're actually seeing it in practice with Pullman and Hamannick versus Burroughs and Chen and Juleson and now Juleson in front of your eyes on an everyday basis as you watch this team play worth keeping in mind as this club makes their plans to approach the NHL trade deadline on March 21st that will do it for us on the Canucks hour reminder 730 start time for the Canucks versus the Islanders of course you can hear it game day coverage all right here on Sportsnet 650 we will be back tomorrow up next it's the people show on your home of the Canucks Sportsnet 650